0: Welcome home, and welcome to the Mount Carmel Ministries podcast. Today we pick up with Fred Baltz, one of our adult camp teachers from last summer, teaching on the Exodus. In the book of Exodus, what I think we should do today is go to chapter 14 and just read it completely through before we make any comment on it. Chapter 14, then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pahiroth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal ziphon you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them "'and camped at the sea by Pihahiroth in front of Bal-Ziphon. "'When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. "'And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, "'and they feared greatly. "'And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. "'They said to Moses, "'Is it because there are no graves in Egypt "'that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness?' What have you done to bring, done to us bringing us out of Egypt? Is it not what we said to you in Egypt, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry land. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of the Lord, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea." moses now as time permits we're going to go into the next chapter two which is called the song of moses and we're going to notice perhaps some some um contrasts or how some things are perhaps cast a little bit differently for us but right now we're going to stick with 14 and let me remind you that we are testing a hypothesis and our hypothesis is that uh a supernatural use of the natural is what best explains what we are seeing here in these verses and and in these chapters let's go with our let's go with this map and let me remind you that the Egyptologists from the 20th century all just without question thought that our sea crossing was up here someplace in the Border Lakes region on the well, the, the eastern side of the Nile Delta. Now we have uh, some modern thought that it's perhaps up here someplace. But in one of the old lakes that have shifted with, with the... Um, with the Suez Canal, a reality now that wasn't there before. Some of this has changed, and over time, things change anyway. But there are surely good reasons for thinking that the crossing happened up in there. Now, you know, we've talked about one movie, and that was... uh, the Ten Command talked about that several times. I want to ask you now if you're familiar with another film, and it's one of my favorites, but that doesn't mean anybody else has even seen it, actually. But it's from 1963, and the title is It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Yeah, okay. For those who don't know about this film, it had in it most of the great comedians of the time, all playing different parts And it starts out like this. You're on a highway in this kind of barren area in California, and there's this car speeding down the highway. It's driven by Jimmy Durante. He runs off the road and crashes, and all these other people on the highway who are going their various ways, they see it happen, so they rush down to see what's happened and if they can be of any help. And Jimmy Durante, playing the character called Smiler Grogan, a person who has stolen lots of money, he's clearly on his way out of this world. And all these people, these assembled people, they hear him say, there's all this money, 150 Gs. It's there for the taken. All you have to do is go to Santa Rosita State Park and there you'll find it. It's under this big W. It's under the big W, I tell you, the big W. So then he, he kind of jerks like this as he's dying, and there's a pail there. He, act, he literally kicks the bucket. And with that, all these people who never knew each other before are kind of discussing this. And before you know it, they're all off individually racing to this state park to be the first ones to get the money. And things happen along the way, like Jonathan Winters, his character meets Phil Silvers, and, and Jonathan Winters is trying to find Phil Silvers now to wring his neck. And so while they're running through the park and all these things are going on, Jonathan Winters is the first one who gets it. He's chasing Phil Silvers when this happens. Do you see the look on his face? Because... That's the big W. It's the trees. We are looking for three places called Pihahirath, Migdol, and Bal-Ziphon. The Egyptologists cannot, with any sense of certitude, tell you where they are. Now, they have, uh, they have opinions. They have conjectures. They have conjectures. They have candidates. And the Egyptologists say they're all up here someplace. Um, Migdol, they say, is that's got to be a fort. That's got to be an Egyptian fortress, and there were plenty of Egyptian fortresses up there. I told you about the Way of Horus. That was a, that was a, a, a set of forts going on toward the rest of the Levant there. Um, Pihahirath. That name is surely an Egyptian name, but uh, it's capable of more than one definition. And no one could say with certainty that they know what it means. I showed you Manfred Bittach's picture. He says, I don't know what it means. I, I know there are theories, but I couldn't tell you. If he can't tell you what it means, nobody can tell you exactly what it means. But one strong theory is that it means house of Hathor. And Hathor was one of the main Egyptian goddesses. So that this would be a big Hathor temple somewhere up there in that region. And then uh, Baal-Ziphon. baal Zephon is the name, well, you've recognized the Baal at the first part of it. You know, that's a, that's a name for a lot of different versions of basically the same idea. A, a god of, uh, of nature, a god of storms. And Baal Zephon was associated with the far north. There's a mountain up there, Mount Cassius, associated with him. He was the sort of the patron god of mariners. And there's literary, there's written evidence up here that he was certainly known up there in Egypt. So the, the big argument from the Egyptologists is that all these names are Egyptian toponyms. They're Egyptian names. So where else would you look for them but in Egypt? Let's just, uh, let's, let's be, um, let's be investigators again. If on the basis of what you heard in chapter 14, if God is sending Moses to a particular place where the water is going to divide and there are three names given, where they're supposed to go, are these these places going to be like 10 or 20 miles apart? They're all going to be pretty much in the same place, like almost on top of each other, if the whole point here is to direct Israel to one particular place where this Red Sea miracle will unfold. But that seems to be kind of lost on the Egyptologists because... Again, they're only speculating in the first place, but they'll say, "Well, there must have been a there must have been a Baal Ziphon here, and there must have been a piahireth here," and uh, so there's a lot of a lot of weakness to begin with in their theory. If if you put it in that region, now again, we're going back to yesterday, um, the pillar of cloud and fire. It says, was there for them day and night, and it didn't cease until they reached Mount Sinai. It just didn't cease during their whole their whole path to Mount Sinai, I'll put it that way. So that implies days, that they were on a journey that lasted for days, doesn't it? If they're only wandering around, going back and forth up here from, from Sukkoth to some some set of three uh, locations that's not taking days it takes days if you come across here but it doesn't take days up there so that's kind of strike two against the border lakes idea and there's one more that they seem to have overlooked Um, as as we read this once Moses and Israel got to those three places wherever they happened to be. Then they looked up and they saw that the Egyptians were coming after them and what did they say to Moses? They said, excuse me, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here into the wilderness to die? That would surely argue against them being in Egypt when they said that, wouldn't it? Yeah, but then the Egyptologists come back and say, it says in the text, the wilderness has shut them in. Well, if the wilderness has shut them in, doesn't that mean they have to be here? The wilderness has two ends to it. This is one end, this is the other end. If they came across the Sinai Peninsula and then turned back, Pharaoh, hearing his reconnaissance reports, would conclude this wilderness has trapped them. It has shut them in because when they've tried to go here into the land of the Edomites or if they've tried to go into the land of the Moabites or if they've tried to go to the Midianites, they got pushed back. The wilderness has shut them in. Can you tell yet I'm starting to argue some someplace other than the Border Lakes region? I am, yes. Okay, let's um, pursue this further now. Let's move to the Gulf of Aqaba. And I have here arrows that indicate the theories now about where the crossing site was there. Let's start at the very south, Straits of Tyran. And I may have a better picture of that, but you could tell already from that picture that... Um, no, that's not it. That's... Excuse me. You can tell from that picture of the Straits of Tyran that... Go back to this. That down here... There are islands, and the water seems to be quite shallow here. So there's one archaeologist, at least he calls himself that. I'm not convinced that he really even is, but his name is Stephen Rudd. And he makes a case that, that Israel came down along this side of the Sinai Peninsula, and he tries to find our three sites, Ziphon, Pahiroth, and Migdol, down here migdol he says is kind of a it's it's a a ledge of mountains he comes up with these identifications and he says this is where they crossed now remembering from what we read talks about how god divided the water what's the key ingredient here for the way that god divided the water the East Wind. One person we'll talk about him uh, probably next. His name is Glenn Fritz. He's uh, he's a geographer. He's got a Ph.D. He's done a remarkable job of putting a book together here. Uh, he wants to put the crossing farther north, but he knows that the reading of God dividing the water by an east wind is fatal to his viewpoint, and it's fatal to this viewpoint too. Because, well, you heard yesterday about Alexander Tulak and his experience at Lake Mensla when the wind blew all night, then he got up in the morning and the lake that had been there was gone. Now he couldn't even see it. It was seven miles away. That can happen with shallow water. It doesn't happen with deep water. It can't happen with deep water. And all the people who want to uh, lift up this Straits of Tyran site, they fail to mention that there are two passages here. Um, one is called the Grafton Passage, and, one, and the other one is called the Independence Passage, I think. They're shipping lanes. And they're extremely deep, extremely deep. So even though the water may be relatively shallow over here, there is no way that the wind, an east wind or any other kind of wind, opened up the sea at the Straits of Tirin. I mean, we're talking about depths such that you can take the tallest building in the world and set them on the floor of the ocean there and not see the top of the building. A wind that would blow that out would be a wind that would kill everybody who ever tried to walk through. I mean, it's just, it just doesn't happen in the world. Now, uh, people come back, like, like Glenn Fritz, he comes back and says, but, but God was doing this, and it's a miracle, and God can do whatever he wants. Well, I agree with that. It's just that the Bible says it happened by means of a strong east wind overnight. Glenn Fritz says, but go to the authoritative uh, uh, lexicon, the the authoritative Hebrew lexicon, uh, and um, you'll see that it says, when you preface, it's it's the Hebrew letter baith, it would be our letter b, that's the way they do use prepositions, that's the way they make prepositions, you put a you put a letter on the beginning of the word and it becomes a preposition. So the our letter B or, or Baith means in. And it says in the text that the Lord was in the strong east wind. This Gazenius Couch book that he's talking about has a section that says never, never, never when Baith is is prefaced like that, can it mean that um, this is an agent of changing something, that this is causative. So he says, I have proof that that's not what the text means. The, the wind just happened to be blowing, and God was in the wind, but that's not how the water was divided, he says. But the Gazenius Couch lexicon has been um, superseded by the Brown-Driver-Briggs lexicon. And the Brown-Driver-Briggs lexicon has a section that shows how faith can be causative. So it's just the reverse of what the old lexicon said. He's going by the old lexicon, I'm telling you what's in the new lexicon, and and, and also what all of the committees of Bible translators that have given you your NRSV and your English Standard Version, they all say the Lord drove the sea back by, by means of a strong east wind. So we have to be looking for a place where we can find a supernatural use of the natural. And as much as I love the Ten Commandments, the scene in the Ten Commandments is not the way the Bible says the water was divided. Well, but doesn't it say that there was a wall of water on the left and a wall of water on the right? Yes, it does. The word for wall is the Hebrew word homa. And that can mean a wall that stands up, but it's used in other ways too. In fact, in the Song of Solomon, it's used of a wife. A man's wife is a defense, a homa, a wall against bad things happening to him. The the nuance of homa here is defense. So think of a passage through a sea And there's water standing on each side, but not necessarily standing upright. Standing to each side, and that wall, excuse me, that water in in these walls is a defense. So that whoever is chasing you can't attack you from your right and cannot attack you from your left, but you're defended. The only place for you to go is straight ahead. Every place else, you're covered and protected. From the people who are coming after you. Okay. Well, that's enough about the Straits of Tyran, I think let's let's go on to the to the one that's more of a contender in popular culture today, and that's the one that I was mentioning to you. And just find the right slides here. Where we're going to be looking next is right down about there. There it is. That, that little outcrop into the Gulf of Aqaba, that's a beach, and it's called Nuweiba. And a lot of people have thought that Nuweiba is the place. This picture is kind of turned here. North is that way in this picture, <laughs> But the, the case made by Glenn Fritz and others is that Israel traveled down this pathway through these mountains and they came to this beach. Some claim that there is the, ru- the ruins of a fortress that would be the Migdol there and that Pihahirath means mouth of the water. And I, I mentioned the definition, house of Hathor. The other definition is mouth of the canal or mouth of the water, uh, some, something like that. And they say that Bal Ziphon is on the other side. There was a person who died back in the late 70s, maybe early 80s. His name was Ron Wyatt. And he too called himself an archaeologist. And uh, he claimed to have found the Ark of the Covenant. He knew where it was. He just couldn't tell anybody. Yeah. He knew where the Tower of Babel was, too. And he had found Noah's Ark. Now, he's behind a lot of this stuff. Um, he, he said that there is a, a column, and there is a column at Neweba. There's a stone column. I don't. It doesn't show on this, I guess. But there's a stone column there. He said he found one on the opposite shore, and both these columns he says were set up by King Solomon to mark the place where the sea divided, and he knew that from reading the kind of effaced lettering on the other column, which nobody knows where it is but he's he's got a lot of followers and and people like Glenn Fritz have seen at least they've seen in his original idea an idea that they wanted to pursue, and then even if if uh Ron Wyatt turned out to be a a charlatan or a crook. Maybe he really had found the right place. Here's what is claimed. That right there at Neweba Beach, there is a land bridge. And to the north and to the south of this land bridge, there are tremendously deep, parts of of the Gulf of Aqaba. So that would lead you to think that the land bridge is shallow. But the land bridge is another one of those places, if you took the world's tallest building and set it there, the top would not come out of the water. So it's extremely deep. It's just not deep compared to the rest of it. And there is no way that wind can be the answer. So Glenn Fritz, taking this original idea, says that the Lord made the water come up out of that place and it kind of set off to one side. And of course, that would cause a huge vacuum of air to come sweeping in and that's the east wind, he said. He he can't get around that the Lord divided the water by means of a strong east wind. Now, have you heard or seen on the internet that there are chariot wheels on the floor of the ocean of the Red Sea there? That's another argument, and it rests on the integrity of Ron Wyatt and, uh, and others too, though. Uh, there have been others who, who have said that they have seen wheels. Now, if you go on the Internet and look, this is one of the examples you'll find <clears throat> of a chariot wheel that's photographed on the floor of the Gulf of Aqaba. As a person who has personally built chariot wheels... <laughs> Let me say to you, that's not one of them. Chariot wheels, I mean, they're marvelously constructed. And let me, if, if, if I, let me say it now so I be sure I, that I get this in. At the time of Thotmos III, whom we're looking at as the Pharaoh of the Exodus, in his time and before, the wheels had four spokes. During his reign as Pharaoh... For some reason, they went to six spokes. They're stronger with six. but Something caused him to build a lot of chariots with six spokes and no longer four. Okay, well, here's how it's done. This is, it takes a master woodworker and a, really a group of them to build something like a chariot wheel. Well, maybe not with power tools, but, but by hand. Because every part of it is wood. Now, people think that the bearings and it were metal. They weren't. In pictures like you see of King Tut's chariots, you see that, the, that, that where the axle meets the wheel, that's all gold. And it is, but that's gold leaf. That's gold leaf over the top. It's not a metal uh, axle and a metal bearing. It was wood. There were sometimes um, animal skins. Animal skins. They actually took the entrails of animals, and by soaking them, they got them pliable. And you could get the right size and shape of the material you were looking for because it would be like a tube. You know, like a put that over the axle and let it shrink. So at least it wasn't wood on wood and then you could use animal fat to lubricate it. But there's nothing really fancy about these chariot bearings. So what you've got there, I mean, look at that. That whole thing is metal. Um, The chariot axle is anywhere from this to this big around, depending upon whether it's just a light thing for hunting or it's going to carry a couple soldiers. Um, Egyptian soldiers in chariots were in groups of two, and one did the driving and the other handled the weapons. So you had to have enough to support two people. There was also a chariot runner in a lot of cases who was on the ground and kind of did mop-up operations if someone was just wounded over here, needed to kill that person. So um, let's think about this uh, while while we're on the subject of chariots. Uh, you got two horses that are strong horses and don't even know that there's a chariot back there. <clears throat> okay, I built, I built one chariot, and then I supervised the building of one that was steel, a fabrication of one that was steel that really would stand things like parades and other stuff. And there was a time when I actually got to stand in that chariot behind horses on a farm. And we were in a driveway and there was gravel in the driveway and the steel rim on the chariot, you know, sometimes it'll catch a rock, you know, a wheel will catch a rock and kind of shoot it out like that, make a sound. That happened and it kind of startled one of the horses. And that chariot just lurched forward. I understood from that moment on why the drivers of the chariots were tied in. They were tied in because that's how fast those things went when they were in a battle. And uh, as I said, those horses really didn't know there was anything behind them because these were light, light um, and devastating uh, instruments of war. So they had bows and they had quivers full of arrows and full of javelins. Now, anybody here ever shoot a bow and arrow? Probably everybody at some point. Um, how long does it take between the first arrow and the second arrow? The time is spent aiming, isn't it? I mean, that's where. You t- but but to put another arrow on there, even for us, let alone people who are in a culture where they can just do arrow after arrow. I mean, I've seen maybe you've seen them too videos of people from other places. They some of them put the put the uh, arrow on the other side of the bow. The Egyptians had these kind of compound, um, I should say composite bows. They already had those. They were capable of shooting arrows long distances. We read yesterday that Israel went out ready for war, but they weren't ready like the world's superpower, the Egyptian army. So here, it, it just hypothetically, let's say here's a group of people and they're on the ground. They're on foot. And let's say that a chariot force now comes after them and it divides in two and starts making spirals around this group on the ground. What are they going to do? If they try to run this way, the spirals just move this way. The people on on foot cannot get away. So if you had, let's make it for for, uh, easy numbers, let's say 500 chariots 500 chariots are circling, and in each chariot, there's a weapons person who starts to just launch arrows that are going to fall inside that circle. In a minute's time, if you, if you uh, could shoot an arrow every, let's make it three seconds. Well, my, now my math, I'm getting ahead. Three seconds, okay, so that's 20 arrows a minute, right? Three seconds goes into 60 seconds 20 times. 20 arrows. 20 arrows times 500, that's in the first minute. That's how many arrows rain down on those people on foot in the first minute. So a, a chariot force is just, I mean, it's just carnage. And they had. that's one of the things they did was to encircle. The other thing that they did was um, a group of them would drive up and fire their weapons, and then they would move back, and the next flank would come up. They had this all down to a science. And Pharaoh took his, his um, chief, his elite chariot force to be in the lead. So that's what chariots did, and that's why they needed to have Fairly decent-sized axles, but the axles were wood. And the chariot wheels were made of bent wood. Um, just think of the letter V, and imagine a piece of wood that's bent like that. Now, you have sets of those, and you put them together, and you bond the legs of the V. There in the center, you put a wooden hub, and around the side, you have bent wood rims, and that's how chariot wheels went together. And they looked, a real chariot wheel, looked like that. Okay, and again, I said, that's gold leaf over what appears to be gold. Slid onto the axle. Um, There's a pin that keeps it from running off. So each one of these is really two pieces of wood. See, there's a V here, there's a V here, and they're all all stuck together. Well, now back to that one. They would have you think that that is a chariot wheel. i tell you what I did. I I, I found uh, that at eBay, you can get a bread machine pulley wheel that looks just like that. I've ha- actually found one that looks even exactly like the one we just saw. Um, they also they put these kinds of drawings on the Internet as though you can see the, uh, the, en- the encrusted growth that's over the wheels. Well, the wheels, of course, and the axle are drawn in. The bottom line is, Though people have said they saw chariot wheels on the floor of, of the uh, Gulf of Aqaba, no proof of that has ever come forward. There's also been the claim of bones, and they have tested to be either human or horse bones. Uh, but let's go back to what we said about the Straits of Tyran, and I said there were two shipping lanes When we were at Aqaba two years ago, we were up at the north end, there's shipping that's going on there from top to bottom, and it's been going on for thousands of years. So sure, there are shipwrecks, and there are going to be bones, and there are going to be other things, ancient and modern, on the floor of the Gulf of Aqaba, and the best case scenario is that some well-meaning person really did take a picture of a wheel, uh, on the bottom, but it, um, it, it wasn't a chariot wheel. It was a wheel from something else. Okay, now back to... We've pretty much taken care of Tiran and Nuiba. Now, Sir Colin Humphreys has uh, written this book, The Miracles of Exodus, And he has a pretty good case to make. First of all, as we've seen, the the head of the Gulf of Aqaba is where you would have to go if you were headed for Midian. The only way to get there is around the north end of the Gulf of Aqaba. So he's already on the right track. Do you recall from our reading this morning What the Lord tells them to do, they are to go to these three places. But just before that, it says what? Turn back. They had gone as far as a place called Etham. Etham. Now, the Egyptologists say Etham, that's a corruption of the Egyptian word ketam, which means fortress. So we're back in Egypt again. But when we were uh, in this part of the world a couple years ago, I saw a confirmation of what is on old maps. uh, just, Just north and east, like right here, we were in our tour bus and we were crossing this bridge and the sign said, Wadi, which is um, stream, Wadi Yatam, that's the Arabic. That was Etham. And on maps from the um, 19th century, we have it. There's, a, there's an area here and also a mountain that is called Mount Etham. Glenn Fritz, in my opinion, cooking the evidence he says in his book etham we know that etham was in the northwest part of arabia that puts it here just like the old maps and so forth but in his map because he wants the crossing to be at Nuiba, he puts etham over here he he has it right in words but he has it he has it wrong in other ways well So um, Colin Humphrey says, you turn back from Etham and you're at the northern tip of the Gulf of Aqaba. And he says, in this general region, there's a place where they worship Hathor. Um, There's possibly a place where they worship baal Zephon. He says, there's reason to think we're in the right general location up here. And according to him then, The prevailing wind, which would be a northeasterly wind, drove the water of the Gulf of Aqaba to the south and exposed a ridge. He thinks he even knows where that ridge is. He he believes it's uh, still possibly to be seen despite the changes. There's been a lot of building and so forth change there at the northern end. Um, The sea level at the time of the Exodus, proves Sir Colin Humphreys to be wrong because the sea level was too low back then for his otherwise wonderful theory to be true. So I think he's right about the general location. He's certainly right about having to come across the Sinai Peninsula on the way to the land of Midian He's right about this being the Yam Suf, the Sea of Reeds or Sea of Land's End. He says at the end of his book, I'm going to leave it to someone else to try to find the locations of Pihahirath and Baal and Migdol. Well, now, I told you as I was studying this, I came across a particular map. Remember that? A map from 1896. I had been looking at maps from different centuries, every one I could find. This one and this one alone, oh, excuse me, this one and this one alone had something on it that none of the others did. There's our Suez Gulf, Red Sea, and the Gulf of Aqaba. Look at that and look at that. You've heard of the smoking gun? These are the smoking lakes. Why would there be lakes on one map and one map only? Well, the answer is they're very shallow lakes and they're not there all year round. They're what we call ephemeral lakes. And so I really started to investigate this and I got in touch with a person who works today at a a wildlife refuge, a bird refuge right here at the north end of uh, the Gulf of Aqaba. And she confirmed These lakes still appear every year after the rain. From the winter into the spring, they're there until they dry up. Now that's today. What about 3,500 years ago? Do we have any reason to think that there was more water there? See, I can't blame anybody for not looking at a place like this for the sea crossing site because the missing thing, of course, is water. But 3,500 years ago, these ephemeral lakes were not ephemeral. They were merged into one big lake that was 10 miles long. You know, we're not far in this part of the world from the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is up. It's just farther up the same uh, fault line because there are a lot of earthquake activity. It's up this way, just off of our map. And this is what has recently happened at the Dead Sea. They took core samples from the bottom. And with those core samples, they were able to look at the different layers and match them to the to the years, to the centuries. I think they went in 40-year increments. And they were looking for pollen, pollen in the mud that had settled down through the water onto the bottom of the Dead Sea. And they found that there seems to have been a collapse of civilization about the time of Ramses II, and it was due to radical climate change. Imagine that. Climate change back in biblical times But back in the time of Moses, the actual word used in the article is the word humid. Imagine the Dead Sea and all this desert area having once been humid. Imagine rainfall. Imagine this area, this depression, getting rain all the time rather than the small fraction of an inch that they get a year now. And there is evidence there of wells that went dry. I told you about the earthquake activity. There is evidence of streams being stopped. In the Middle Ages, right right there, in the Middle Ages, there was an irrigation system that had been built to use one of the existing streams and grow crops. But an earthquake stopped that stream. Another stream dried up in the middle of the 20th century. So try to think of this in a whole different way. Try to think of this as a place that had lots of water. And even if, in 1446, even if this wasn't completely filled with water normally, we got to remember something from the other day. It concerns the plagues. This whole business of how the grain got poisoned began with what? Hail, hail, hail and rain like they had never seen. In the northern hemisphere, and I checked this with a meteorologist, in the northern hemisphere, systems like that move from west to east, and that same rain system would probably have come across this very part of the world that we're talking about. So even if it had been dry, now it was going to be the recipient of what we like to talk about, like the 100-year rain, the 100-year flood. So there was water there. There was water there. And you know what? Let's take a quick break just to get up and stretch, and then we'll finish. How about that? Let's do that. We hope that this episode of Fred's teachings on the Mount Carmel Ministry podcast have been a blessing to you. If you're interested in finding out about Mount Carmel or about coming to one of these sessions in person, please visit mountcarmelministries.com.